and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall, no quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me, and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. So first of all, thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Always appreciate you chiming in and and listening to these conversations. So thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's conversation, if you could go over to iTunes and write us a review, it really helps us as we continue to try to expand our reach. Also, if you could share these conversations on social media, whether it's Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is your social, once again, it helps us as we continue to build this thing out. So thank you for being here and thanks for the support on the podcast. Now to today's guest. Susanna Welford is somebody who got introduced to by my intern, Joey, and you'll hear us give Joey a shout out. So Joey deserves a shout out as well in the intro. And Susanna is somebody that Joey said, hey, Brian, I think Susanna would be great for your podcast. And we connected. And over the last two decades, she founded two organizations designed to raise the political voice of young women in America. And the one that she's really going to talk about today is Running Start, which she started to inspire young women and girls to pursue political leadership. And Susanna is going to talk about her relationship with politics starting from a young age and how she came up with this idea of Running Start, which to date has trained over 15,000 young women to run for elected office. They further the work begun by the Women Under 40 Political Action Committee, which Susanna co-founded in 1999 and lived for five years. So you'll find out that Susanna is a big believer in underdogs, that she wants to empower and give power to underdogs, and she'll explain why that is so important to her. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Susanna Welford. Susanna, thank you so much for coming in and coming on the podcast. We got connected by intern Joey, who is actually sitting mm-hmm. to my left right. and listening in on this conversation. Joey has been awesome working for me all summer, uh, doing all kinds of great work. If you are ever on social media and seeing the videos that we play 
for the podcast. That is Joey who puts those together. So shout out to Joey, who's about to go back to Northwestern University, which means that he's way smarter than I ever was. <laughs> and uh, he's going to be a sophomore there. So anyone at Northwestern listening, give Joey a shout out when you see him, uh, at least before it gets too cold up in up in Chicago area. Um, but this is about you and not about Joey. Uh, maybe in a couple of <laughs> years, we'll have Joey on the podcast. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, but I wanted to chat with you. And we had a phone call uh, about a month ago, and uh-huh. uh, just was really fascinated about your story and your journey. And we're going to talk about confidence and diversity and all kinds of different things that make humans humans. Yeah. But I wanted to start back when you were a child and just get a sense of how you've come to be you and where your passion lies and and how you've evolved over the years. So give us a little bit of an idea of what you, your life was like as a kid. Well, first, thank you very much for having me on. This is going to be really a fun conversation. Um, Okay, so I, as a as a little kid, I was very painfully shy. But as my mother reminded me just the other day, it didn't last very long. And I um, was around family and friends and people I was comfortable with. I was very outgoing, very outspoken. But then around strangers and at school, I wasn't. And so around seventh grade, I just totally just clammed up. And didn't raise my hand, didn't want to um, really have people hear my voice at all. Any idea why around that yeah, age? Puberty. Yeah. I mean, don't you think I was I was thirteen? I really think it's that all of a sudden I'd been a kid and sort of knew who I was, and then I was suddenly a different person. And I think that happens to so many girls. I think that that period up until you're you know you hit puberty, girls have just as much confidence as boys. Girls are just as likely to say they want to be leaders, that they want to be president of the United States, and then there's something strange about that that change in our bodies that makes us take a step back and question who we are a little bit. Do you think it's also environment, culture? Mm-hmm. What, what else do you think? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, so, right, so puberty, all of a sudden you start looking more like a woman. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of baggage that goes with that. You're more self-conscious. You understand you're, you're being looked at not just as, as a person or, or for the inside, but for the outside too. I, I do think that has something to do with it. That, that growing self-consciousness that people are, they're looking at you in a different way, a way probably you don't even understand. And if you could tap into your identity up until seventh grade, what would you say that identity was? Um, oh, that's an interesting question. So I had a t-shirt when I was maybe eight that said a woman's place is in the house and the Senate. It was like a big seventies t-shirt. And, uh, so I think I was kind of that girl who just was, you know, a little bit of a tomboy. And then starting in seventh grade, I, I sort of figured that that wasn't, that wasn't going to be the way I was going to, that I needed to project to the world. And, and that changed. It's pretty fascinating. I don't, I don't think anybody thinks I'm a tomboy now, but I really did like that. I, I have that side of me. Yeah. Where did you grow up? What were the, what was your family dynamics like? Just give me a little more insight. So I have realized over the years how incredibly lucky I, I was with my childhood. So I actually grew up here in D.C. I have parents who I'm still extremely close to. They've been married like 55 years. I have a sister uh, who's one of my dearest, dearest friends. And it was a really happy childhood. And the, you know, the older you get, the more people you talk to, you realize like, man, people do not have happy childhoods for all sorts of different reasons. You know, a parent dies or parents get divorced or all sorts of things. And I, I 
think that that really strong upbringing of love and stability, even though, because we're going to talk about confidence, so even though sometimes confidence is a real issue for me, I feel like that that foundation helps me to be who I am. Like that's sort of, I can always sort of go back to that. And I, I always, I can find confidence from that. That, that upbringing. safety and security and knowing that you'll be okay. Yeah, ultimately that I'll be okay. Yeah. I think, yeah, I was really lucky. It's fascinating. I, I agree with you so much. I had similar upbringing, uh-huh. just amazing lucky, parents. Lucky yeah. yeah, it's so fortunate. Two brothers, we fought all the time, but now we're good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have intimate conversations with all kinds of people, uh-huh. uh, really diverse people from all walks of life, all types of backgrounds and classes yeah. and uh, any demographic you can imagine. And I've been amazed because I usually start my work with people by finding out their story. Mm-hmm. That's where I start. Yeah. And the amount of people that on the outside you think have it all. Oh my God. That, and then you find the out their, life, right? their story and their upbringing. Yeah. And it, it really like, First of all, mental health doesn't discriminate, right? Yeah. Like th- there is no correlation between race or ethnicity or, you know, it, people that seem like they have it all. We've seen Anthony Bourdain or Robin Williams oh or yeah. whoever you want to yeah. talk about. Kate Spade. Yeah. Kate Spade. Yeah. I mean, like that was all within like a short span. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't discriminate, first of all. And then second of all, certainly there is more stress in households that, are impoverished and, and have oh, issues, yeah. certainly. Oh, yeah. But I've been Dangerous. blown yeah. blown away at the impact that people that, once again, you think have have it all, but then you go into their story as far as what the child's perspective is, and it's it's very, very different. And it's been amazing because I agree with you so... It, it is rare to find someone who really looks back at their childhood and says, yeah, I got everything I needed yeah. from my childhood. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's interesting because... I work with a lot of, of uh, people who have had really hard childhoods and sometimes, wow, it builds this like concrete resilience in you, like where you just, they can go through anything because they, they survived, you know? So, and I had things, you know, I had things that didn't go well, like every human, but they were later in life. And I, I, I just look at these kids and think, you know, when you were so young, you had to surmount this thing. And you did it. Like, of course you're unstoppable. And then the other thing that I've heard from a lot of people is like if they had a parent that they look at and they're like, I, I don't think that they really did it right, they yeah. can go the opposite direction. Yeah. And they say, all right, well, they went right. I'm going to go left uh, because I want it different. Yeah, my and, mom did that. Mm-hmm. So my mom's parents were German and they were not very affectionate. My mom is very affectionate, let's just say. I mean, she would hug you right now if, if she were in the room. So yeah, you can you can change you can change your destiny. Okay, so seventh grade, you start to go more inward uh, and and stop raising your hand as much in in school. Um, what was what was the rest of your upbringing like? So, I mean, it's funny because you know I'm 51 now, and I look at the arc of my life, and I can see I've, I'm I am blessed with not just having a happy childhood, but just I always see the glass half full. Like I just I. I have a positive mentality. Does that and come from mom, dad? Where does that come from? Yeah, it does. Actually, I'm just thinking like they're both they're both really like that. Um, but then I can see like there's some dark lines in my path. And weirdly, one of them was seventh grade where I was bullied. I mean, I, I, 
I feel like bullying is something that um, probably everybody has experienced one way or the other, but it was such a shock because I'd had this comfortable, loving family and I had good friends and I moved to a different school and for really all of seventh grade, I was, I was bullied and at the new school at the new school. Yeah. And it was, it, I, it was the sort of thing that made me, it kind of stopped me on my tracks for a few years. And then, and then interestingly, um, later in life going to therapy and talking about certain things that were holding me back. Some of those were traced back to seventh grade because I think, you know, that those times in your life where you first learn to doubt yourself and to think, well, maybe I have a good self-image, but maybe other people, they don't, they don't like what they see, that, that that stays with you in a really fundamental way. And so, you know, it's just been in the past literally like five years where I've started to unpack that and, and to sort of name it when I feel it so that I can, I can let it go. Is there anything in the last five years that triggered you going down that path and exploring? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll tell you my dark periods, the seventh grade. And then um, in when I was in my early 30s, I got laid off from a job and it was a dream job. And there's there's a whole story to that, which is kind of interesting. But but that was a what like, was the job? Um, I was working at a law firm and I. I just, I loved it. I was a young associate, but I, I had kids and I was working part-time and eventually they thought it didn't make sense for me to work part-time. And so, so I was laid off and it was, it rocked my world. I thought that I was, you know, I'd be there maybe not forever, but, but it was just a true upheaval of life. Like, wait, this is what I was going to do. And now what am I going to do? Okay, so can we step into that a little? Cause I'm, yeah. I'm 35. Uh-huh. So I am absolutely at the age where you see these brilliant, successful women oh, uh-huh. have to make this decision. Yeah. And man, like I'm I'm having these conversations with women to try to understand their perspective on what it's like when you've built a career yeah. and now you have a kid and now you, like there are these options, yeah. but none of them are the same as the... Well, they could be the same. No, none of them are the same no, option as what it was before. Sure. Like it, it's I either work and then I'm and I'm a mom. It's either I go part time and I'm a mom right. or it's either, you know, I'm a or mom full time and right. I don't work. And for men, uh, I'll just speak for myself. I can't speak for all men. That friction is for me has not been as as hard. Um for for me, I think that many men would agree with you. Yeah. They feel it a different way. I read a stat the other day that said that um, that when women um, have a baby and a job, that they will actually do more housework than they did before because they're trying to sort of compensate and to show their husband like I can do it. Don't it's okay. Like I I'm superwoman. I can do it. And well, that's so crazy, you know. So when you were that age. What vision did you have for yourself from a career standpoint? Do you can you go back to that? Oh yeah, yeah. Because I actually I think about it a lot. I mean, so um, I had worked in this. I worked in politics. I was at the White House and the Senate and um, some government agencies. Like I really did politics in my in my twenties. And then I went to law school, got this job, and um, I I just never along the way had thought about the fact that as a woman, my path was going to be different than the men who I was I was growing up with and so I actually remember um when I got pregnant I one of the women in the firm 
there were not very many women partners, but one of the women partners came up to me and she's like, listen, I know you're probably nervous about having babies and keeping your career, but don't worry, it's going to be fine. She said, I make sure that every day I have a half an hour solid with my children. Usually what I do is I come home, I like put them to bed and then I go back to work and I'm like, oh no, like, I don't want that. Like, that sounds horrible. And I think that it was, you know, when I was pregnant, I started to realize things are going to be really, they're going to be really different. And then when they were born, it actually was pretty great. So I had twins, by the way. So, um, double the fun, double the fun. And, and when they were born, the, um, partner, um, who I worked for was very understanding. And he, I said, I want to work part-time and that was great. And, I was really smug at that point because, so my schedule was, I got into the office at 8.30, I left at 2, which is, you know, it's an abbreviated day, but um, but it's a good chunk of time. And then I would do calls if I needed to in the afternoon. I got paid half my salary. I think I didn't get any benefits. So I feel like they were getting a good deal. Um, and um, I felt really like, what is all this fuss that women are like, oh, I can't do it. Like, just do what I'm doing. It's great. And because I got all afternoon with my kids, it was fantastic. But I also got this interesting job. And then 9-11 happened and the firm started losing clients and losing money and they started laying people off. And then in my group, there were two women who got laid off and we were both, um, we both had small children and were part-time. And I just... You know, you could debate like there are probably financial reasons. Like I, I understand that, but I just it felt like that was the first time that I realized so starkly, like, oh right, Ooh. it's going to be different. One of the things that I've talked to women about is that when they go on maternity leave, they go on their maternity leave, and while they're gone, they're they're replaced. Um, yeah. and there is a, and. Once again, speaking from just my conversations, like, all right, you now know that you're actually replaceable. Yeah. And actually, the, the company kind of knows that you're replaceable. Yeah. And so how, how do you handle that? Right. That tension? Um, well, I'll tell you something else, too. I mean, which is just so crazy. And I, I've told the story so many times, um, but I just I still can't get over it. So the day that it happened, so it was two male partners I actually really liked both of them who, you know, gave me the news. And I went back into my office and um, I had knocks on my door from some of the people I worked with who found out about it. And two of them were these male partners who I really liked, who, um, who I worked with. And, you know, they came in um, one by one and they both said the same thing. They're like, you know, I know this is disappointing to you, but this is actually going to be better. My wife tried part time. It really doesn't work. It's way better. Your children need you at home. It's way better to be at home. And I was like, you guys spent all this time training me. And and you always gave me great evaluations. And now I would be better off mm. at home with my babies, especially because the babies were great. Like they had they had a great life. They had a really nice nanny for the first part of the day. Then they had me and, and then my husband at the end. So yeah, they were in good shape. They were totally great. Yeah. So it just was, it was so shocking the whole thing was shocking, but that was the worst part of it. What do we do? Like, I, so 
what what is what's like the best case scenario? Because this is oh. a real thing. This is right. this is happening right now. Yeah, that's for, a crazy this, thing. This is still yeah. a real thing for women. And actually, as women get even more in the workforce, right? Like as we continue to progress, there's more women that graduate from college. They graduate right. better. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, like there, there are more women in school. There's more yeah. women in school. Uh, this this, but the reality is that they are. There is this mother component. What do we do? Like, what? How do you see? If we were to say twenty years from now, this has improved as far as women in the workforce. What does it look like? So, I mean, I think a piece of it is when people get married and decide to have children, um, having a a real conversation about what it's going to be like. Like, if I ever did it again, I would say, you know, I I really want it to be fifty fifty. I want us to know, like, you're going to do this stuff. I'm going to do this stuff. You're going to take half the doctor's appointments that I am. Because I, I do think almost every mother I know does all that stuff while they work. It's just we just do it. And so I think a, an agreement like that would be good. But I know you're talking about the employer. so No, but that, I think that's helpful. So starting internally and, yeah. and having a conversation with your partner as far as what do we see for our careers? What's yeah. the vision? Uh do we want to have kids, right? Right. How I mean, many kids fair? do we want? All, right. then, all of that. Yeah, but then that. how are you going to deal with and it? And then how are you going to deal with it? Yeah. I mean, I feel I know so much now that I would I would have done differently. And then as an employer, um, I don't I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I mean, I'm I'm an employer. You know, I've got a staff of seven, and um, nobody yet has had a baby, but they will because it's staff of seven women so so they will and um we have a very generous maternity policy which basically we will be either hiring somebody part-time to fill in or we'll just take on more work while they're while they're gone Mm. and but i think okay so this is just like to take this global like a global thought is what i really think needs to happen is that workforces need to understand that when you have all the same people, then you're not going to get as good a product as when you have diversity, when you have different people thinking different things with different lives, different perspectives. And we don't have that right now. Like if you look at the top of most places, it's it's men mm-hmm. and, and it's frequently white men, right? And so learning to value that diversity, I think that's what's going to have to happen is you know, we, we see it a little bit where people saying, okay, well, if you add women to boards, then the companies actually do better, right? They make more money or, or add them to senior executive positions. The company makes more money. So, but I don't think that's really sunk into decisions about hiring and firing. Let me tell you something. Oh my gosh. I was at this conference recently and this kind of well-meaning man, he was German and he runs a company and he said, uh, he said something that I just, I feel like this is from a textbook in like the sixties. He said, you know, we, we know that it's important to hire women, but we interviewed a hundred women for this position and we just could not find one who was good enough to hire. And it's just like, I think, you know, we, we hire likes, we hire people who are similar to us and have similar experience who we sort of get and we need to figure out how to expand that thinking and to hire people who whose credentials might look a little bit different, but who might add real value. Awesome. We're going to do a deeper dive into diversity, and I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Um, if I were to – there are a couple of thoughts running through my head. Number one, 
if we take the glass half full approach, mm -hmm. the idea that a lot of people can work remotely now, yeah. um, like could be a game changer as you think about women, yeah. um, and their capacity to be present for the kids, get them off to school, uh, men too, by the way. Um, and perhaps that partnership can work better in that way and you don't have to go to an office and then you log in from wherever you are and maybe that remote option will make it uh not i don't want to say easier but no, but i think it will make yeah. it easier i mean the idea of you know when i go into the office all the stuff that has to happen for me to get out the door you know women have to do a lot more stuff than men right sure. like you can kind of roll out of bed and and get here um so I think that, that that does give a lot of flexibility. And then when we were talking about having that conversation with your partner, you know, if more men are saying, I need to work from home because I have to watch the baby that day, th that helps too. It's just, it's changing culture. We've done stuff a certain way forever. And now we're asking society to change to actually to improve and strengthen, but change is hard. Yeah, for sure. I want to fill in the gap. So in the 20s, you were working in politics. Uh -huh. You mentioned that your favorite shirt involved politics. Yeah, yeah. Why politics? What was the draw there? You grew up in the D.C. area, but I grew up here and I wasn't yeah. I wasn't interested in politics at all. Uh -huh. um, I have one friend growing up who was interested in it. Yeah. So I'm curious for you, like, what was the draw to politics? So a little bit, it comes from family because my dad worked in the um, Carter White House and my mom worked at um, the Environmental Protection Agency. I mean, so I was around it a lot and they were, and they still are sort of political people. Um, but I think it comes from power, like the, the desire to have power used the right way. And I've always been really concerned about the underdog and making sure that the underdog is, gets a voice and, and it isn't forgotten. And so sorry, why? I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe because I felt like that sometimes. Although I've told you I had a really happy background, so I, I don't. I don't know well, exactly where that comes from. I'm abs. I I had this amazing childhood, and I am absolutely an underdog fan. Yeah. And uh, for so me, where, where I could trace from? it. Close I could. To what? I was small. Like I was really oh. short and scrawny, uh -huh. and like basketball is my favorite sport. So oh, it's like roll so out the ball. Yeah. And then I always, my favorite athletes were never, I mean, like as a kid for people my age, like Michael Jordan was the guy. But then as I got a little older, I, I wouldn't be drawn to the Michael Jordans. Uh -huh. uh, I'd be drawn, there's a guy named Jerome Williams. Yeah. And Jerome played at Georgetown and, you know, played junior college ball before Georgetown. And uh -huh. his nickname was the Junkyard Dog. And so <laughs> he was this gritty guy. Yeah. And in football, I could name my, so I, I was always... I think I, I, it's always drawn to underdogs. It's interesting, though, because mm. I've talked to um, like a lot of head coaches in the sports world, and a lot of them, I'll be like, oh, yeah, what do you think of the underdog? They're like, nah, I'm not. Because they are oh. really interested in winning, and, yeah. and the underdog doesn't always help them win. And so it's been a fascinating conversation because I, I absolutely cheer for the underdogs. Like that's – I don't – I've always been drawn in, and I think we're similar because for me – uh, I ended up majoring in sociology, minoring in African-American studies. And part of, mm -hmm. uh, in high school, I was introduced to people that were quote unquote underdogs when mm -hmm. it came to education in school sure. and they didn't look like me often. Uh -huh. And so I was like, I wanted to go work for Teach for America. And that was, I think it's a part of my story is that I always loved the underdog. So I can yeah. trace it back, but anything well, popping yeah, for you? I mean, sure. I mean, I think that 
that when I was bullied in seventh grade, it really did do something to my psyche. And I think that it's probably that. I mean, because that's, you know, that that was pretty young when that happened. Stand up for the people that can't stand up for themselves or are struggling to. Right. And it's also, it's the people who are underestimated because people underestimated me. They they didn't see the worth in me. Mm. And so... I work with all of these young people, you know, like I said, many of them come from backgrounds where they haven't been supported or nobody really listens to them or they don't have mentors. And so being able to take somebody who's sort of, you know, who is an underdog and being able to give them the power to have a voice and, and have people see them for who they are. That's, that's really, that's at the heart of, of, what I want to do. Who saw you along your journey? Who who truly saw the potential in you and, and saw yeah. something in you? Well, it's funny because I think both my parents always did. And, and then when I went to college, I had some really good professors who, it's interesting, who, who really supported me and who I could tell they kind of thought I was a, a star. And I'd ne- I didn't really think of myself that way. I was not the best high school student, I have to say. And, um, and then... When I uh, was out of college, I had some really good mentors and powerful women who maybe they weren't even mentors, but who I could tell thought I was smart and and worth worth working with. And that's wow, that builds confidence so much. You know what's amazing about that? I can remember my writing 105 teacher my freshman year in college or in, in high college, yeah. say something like, "You're a good writer." Like you, oh, you it sticks with you, doesn't you, it? Yeah. I hadn't heard that in high school. I hadn't heard anyone. I was just kind of mediocre. Like I was okay. Like whatever. I went to school, got decent grades. Like I was fine enough, but I wasn't a star. And I, I, that stuck with me for sure. And then I can remember people along the way telling me like, you can do some big things. And it is such an amazing thing to remember because we can give that gift to anybody. Like we can provide that gift of seeing someone's potential and and expressing it to anyone. And honestly, so my company running start, that's exactly what we do. We want to tell everybody, look, we know you've got dreams and maybe you think that you don't have any way to get there, but we believe in you and we're going to help you get there. That that's, that's huge. And it's really competitive to get into our program. So I think, first of all, they're getting a boost when they get in. And then, you know, the message from everybody is you can do this. You have something great inside you. People are going to listen to you. They're going to, you can be a leader. So tell us about Running Start, how you started that, why you started it. Perhaps you can even fill in some of the gaps as far as becoming a mom and, and you know, that dark time where you have to leave that law firm mm-hmm. to what happens past there. And, and I'd love to hear more story. Yeah. Give yeah. us a little more story there. Yeah. I mean, so, um, while I was at the law firm, I started, I, you know, was into politics and wait, one more word about politics. I want to get the underdog into power because I know the underdog is often a better leader than the people in power today. And so that's, we that, can go back to that. But did you realize that in your twenties? I think I feel like I've always thought that wow. because the people who are just like, I'm made, I I was born to be a powerful person. You know I'm laughing. To be, you know I know. I'm laughing. No, I know, but I just I think it's so I look at a lot of the leaders and they don't they don't represent me or they don't they don't connect with me. And then every once in a while there's a leader who I'm like, they totally get it. You they know there's a part it. of me right now that just wants to go politics, but I no, just we'll don't stay, know how much we'll that's going to serve. Story. I don't we'll think it's going to serve anything. We'll go back Cuz the there's story. just things clicking on that. Yeah. Uh, as far as I think of politicians and certainly global pol- like on this global stage of politicians and 
Yeah, I, I want to chew on that a little more. Okay. The idea of an underdog politician and what yeah. that does, uh, and, and what, what that looks like, and what that looks yeah. like, because there are people that are resonating for me in that regard, and then there are people that are not. But I don't think it's really going to serve us. Well, so, that could be a whole other podcast. Yeah, maybe we'll do right? it another time. <laughs> okay, so. Maybe you'll start your own podcast, and, and, yeah, I'll, and I'll have you on. And you we'll get, talk politics, yeah, and yeah, I, we'll bring I, Joey. And politics ain't my yeah. not my expertise anyway, but I, you know, I can dabble every once in a while. But yeah, okay, so so you're you have this revelation. Yeah. So, I mean, so basically I've always been interested in politics. And so as a young woman working with a lot of other young women at this firm, we would see, we'd go to Capitol Hill, like we were all lobbyists and working um, on the Hill and there just weren't a lot of women in power. And so we started talking and saying, what if we could do something to help more young women get in power? And I don't have to get into it now, but there's so many reasons it's important that younger women get into politics because men get in when they're super young and women often wait until their kids are out of the nest. And then we have less power even when we're in power. So anyway, so I started a political action committee to help get young women elected to Congress. How do you define power? Sorry well, but to I mean, Oh, I mean, that's another podcast. Um, so I think uh, political power is the ability to create a new law that is going to fix a problem. I mean, you know what? Maybe for me, it's about problem solving. Power is the ability to use what you have to solve a problem, cool. to fix something that, that serves hopefully not just you, but but ideally you're fixing something that that is going to help other people too. Make an impact in that way. Yeah. Yeah, because I hear power and the first things that come to my mind when I hear power, I, I think of abuse. Um, oh, you do? I do. Huh. I, like it's a, it's a, it's a loaded word. Oh, that's so interesting. Cause yeah. I, you say that and I feel like I haven't thought about it that way maybe ever. Yeah. But of course, abuse of power. Yeah. yeah I, or I think of like ego. Um, yes, ego. But then when you get, you know, when a young woman runs for office, um, she's not the typical person to be in power. And so she wields power differently. And there's this thing, this trope that I hear all the time, which is that men want power so they can be powerful people and women want power so they can give power away. It's a little bit of a, you know, a cliche, but there, if you ask women, why do you want to be in power? They very frequently will say, you know, the kids in my community don't have a safe place to go after school. And I, I think I've got a, an idea of how to solve that. As opposed to, I was born to lead. Other people will follow me. It's just, it's a different mentality. That's fascinating. I would love to do a deep dive. And if you have, I would, if you have research on that. Yeah. Oh yeah. That There's sounds, a lot of research on that. Because I can hear the language, uh, the narcissism, and that word gets thrown around, around a lot, but this idea that I was born for this. Oh Man, that's that's a very I mean, just to tease something else up that I don't think we'll have time to talk about today. But I was recently in a discussion with a group of very powerful people, almost entirely men, about meritocracy and about whether meritocracy is a good thing. And it was a fascinating discussion because most of them did feel you were born to lead. That that you can't teach leadership. You can't teach you know, this, you can't teach power, you have to be born with it. And I think that that's, um, to me, that's totally not right. 
And I'm not sure I want people who are sort of born into it to be the people who are leading. It's fascinating. Ray Dalio, who is this successful, I think, hedge fund guy, yeah. uh, wrote a book called Principles, and best-selling book. Yeah. And in it, he talks about the idea of having a meritocracy oh, and I the value of it. Yeah. yeah. So that might be a book to hand those people yeah. um, when there's a, a question of the value of, of that yeah. concept. Um, all right, so back to you, though. So yeah. you are finding that we need to get women in power earlier. Yeah. And you're noticing that as you're lobbying and you're saying, mm-hmm. gosh, we need to change the scales a little bit yeah. here. Um, but basically what happened, so so with this lovely woman, Stacy, we co-founded um, this group to help women get into politics. But then about five years in, I realized that it was never going to accomplish what was the most important to me, which was getting more women to run for office in the first place, more women to want to seek that power to, to um, see themselves in positions where they could be like the problem solver, the key person. And so then I started, I actually, I was at um, uh, picking up my kids from school and I got there a little early and I went for this long walk around the block. And I, all of a sudden I was like, wait, if, if, adult women think they shouldn't wield power, that their voices should be low, that they shouldn't, they shouldn't, um, that this is not a place for them. Politics is not a place for them. Then what if we start talking to kids about it? And so in 2007, I opened Running Start, which is a nonprofit. And we train high school, college, and young professional women in leadership skills, in confidence, in helping them to see themselves as people who can be leaders. And how, how do you build confidence? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's such a revelation to a lot of people that confidence is a muscle. It's something that um, you can absolutely teach. You can train yourself. You know, it's 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 a skill like any other skill. Um, how how do you teach it? You make people do things they're scared of. Mm. Um, so in all of our programs, we have people do public speaking, which people hate public speaking and they don't want to do it, and they they know that they're going to be terrible and when you do those things you're frightened of, it's it inevitably makes you feel better if it's a supportive environment, you know. So stepping into them. discomfort and realizing that you'll be okay. Yeah. And learning that 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 will help build the confidence. The other thing that we talk about in sports all the time is self talk mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. the connection between self talk and my phone goes off and my computer goes off. <laughs> We're live. I'm so happy it's not mine. Yeah, that's it's all. mine. No, That's no all worries. I gotta say. <laughs> and my phone's connected to my computer. and So it, it's like know, a big noise. Yeah, you know, it's just crazy. Uh, so self-talk, like if you look at the mechanics of confidence, yeah. like I could have two high school girls uh-huh. and one of them I could say, You're, you could be president of the United States and I believe in you yeah. and I think you can do all these things. And I could deliver the same message to the other girl. Yeah. And the first girl might sit there and be like, yeah, I can. I'm going to do it. Like, I can't wait. And the other girl would be like, why are you putting all this pressure on me? I don't want that. Like, I don't think I can do that. And so that inner dialogue that we have um, really, because you could put someone in an uncomfortable situation and they could get through it and they could say, I don't ever want to be doing public speaking again. I'm terrible at that. I'm awful. You'd have someone else be like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Like, I think I could do that more often. And so that inner dialogue I have found really can make a massive impact on how we show up. But it's funny because when you said inner dialogue, I thought you meant positive self-talk because one of the things that, that I'll always share with the women we, we train is that I talk to myself all the time and it may sound a little crazy because sometimes it's even out loud, but I I think 
there is always a voice in our head saying, you can't do this. You're not good enough. And then being able to say, that's just a voice in my head. And I'm actually, I am, I am great. And these are the reasons I'm great. And I, so I tell them, you know, be crazy, talk to yourself and try and, and combat that. Yeah. Voice. And I always make a distinction. I, I don't talk about positive self-talk. Um, a lot of people in my oh. field talk about positive yeah. self-talk. That's not me because yeah. I just don't think it's realistic. I talk about useful self-talk. Yeah. Like so what? like, um, okay. Uh, like you said, I'm scared. Yeah. I'm nervous. Yeah. Like, and I'm okay. Like that's not necessarily yes, positive, right? but it's useful. And you said something about labeling emotions yeah. earlier. Yeah. Like the idea of being useful, if I'm playing golf and I hit in the water, like I'm not sure how useful it is for you to be like, oh, that's not a big deal. Oh, like, so true. Like, I agree. But I can say, all right, I hit that in the water. That sucks. Right. And I'm going to get the next one. So the idea of focusing more on being useful in our dialogue than positive, first of all, being positive is really, really hard and not natural. And there are negatives that come if we're just positive all the time. And the other part is that that negative voice in you also has use. Like it can be useful uh, mm. for preparation, right? Like, yeah, I'm not good enough yet. I need to get better. Like I need to work on this, it, you know? So, so where that lies is big. Yeah, but I, I think that that's so interesting when you said, you know, it can be a, a voice to push you. I'm not good enough yet. I I. I need to work more and get better because I think that women and men approach these things differently. And so many women, I mean, I talk all the time. <clears throat> I, I do trainings for, for we do about 2,500 women a year, but then I go out and I speak to groups of young women and I'm telling you the, we all we're human. We all have that voice. You're not good enough yet, right? Keep working. You, you can't do this thing yet, but often for men, it, it's not a stumbling block. You keep going. And often for women, it makes them draw back and say, that's right. I'm not, mm. I'm done. I, and, and I think part of it is when you have that voice and you say, well, I could be better. You can look at that other guy who's at the top and say, look, he did it. I'm supposed to be there. And then I think for women, sometimes they look and they're like, there's literally nobody who can be my role model in this thing. And so maybe I'm not supposed to do it. Yeah. It's fascinating because I think you're talking about it from politics and I'm talking about it from sports. At least that's yeah. where we're, we're, we're based. Yeah. So I, we were talking about this before we turned the mics on. Yesterday I was with American University Women's Soccer. Right. And I could turn to them and say, all right, who's your favorite women's soccer player? Yeah. And they could name them all. Yeah, and, that's so And great, I could, right. you, know, you don't think Carly Lloyd has some self-doubt and you don't think Megan Rapino or whoever yeah. you want to point to. Um, and they're like, yeah, they do. And then, so I think the key there is that next point of what you said, yeah. which is a, a man might then say, okay, now I'm going to figure it out and a woman will go back. And to me, the key then is to tapping into that moment right there and to expanding how women talk to themselves. And yeah. if they can, in that moment, shift that conversation that they have with themselves, because at some point you Shifted. did. You shifted. At some right. point you said, all right, the way these people are seeing me is not how I see myself. Yeah. And I see myself in a different way. And look, perhaps you were also inspired by those teachers and those professors to see yourself in a different way. Mm -hmm. But they, you still had to make the decision to see yourself in a certain no, you're way. Right. You're right. And those, those teachers deliver that same message probably to some other people that and, didn't, and didn't take it. In. So yeah. we work from the inside out with yeah. our, with our dialogue. And I think that piece that, that, if you can figure out how to be useful and to your point, some people might need to be higher on the positivity and some people might need to be higher on the negativity. 
men that's so true like yeah men if you have confidence without humility it's not true confidence so sometimes men need to over index on humility um and sometimes women need to over index yes. on the confidence I, I totally agree with that i think that that that's really wise yeah. there's an interesting stat that i read recently and it was in the atlantic which uh, and perhaps you're familiar with it where they mm-hmm. found that uh, there was a study done, I think, at Hewlett Packard, and they found that when applying for a new job, um, men uh, would apply <laughs> yes. even even if they weren't qualified. Right. And women, you know, they would only apply if they were 100% hit the qualifications. And I think it was, it was like 100% to 60% of yeah. the qualifications. Right. Like men would apply if they had 60% of the qualifications where women would need 100%. No, it's so crazy. I mean... Really, also, when I look back at why I decided to go the direction that I went in working with women in politics, it was and doing sort of confidence training for young women. There was a great study that was first done in 2003 and was just repeated with the same results. And they looked at really accomplished professionals in their in their 40s, you know, business execs, male and female. And they asked them, hey, would you run for office? And so two thirds of the men were like, yeah, I'd run. And then when you ask, well, so what would you run for? The men were like, maybe Senate. And the women were like, maybe school board. And then the most interesting thing is when you ask the women, well, why would you not run? The top reason was that they didn't feel qualified. And I just, I think it's so interesting. Like they, these, you know, the the subset, they had the, they had all the same qualifications. They're all top of their field, but women think we need certain things. And I mean, I, I know this just incredible woman that if you saw her, you'd think she had the most confidence of anybody you've ever seen. And I know that every time she speaks, she comes up to me and she's like, was it okay? Did I do well? I thought I did really badly. It's just, it's such an interesting thing. Yeah. And I think men have that. They just don't share it. So like when I get them on my couch and we're having conversations, like they, that vulnerability that they have is, is actually real. I, and that's why I think you see men have panic attacks and, you know, it shows up because they're sweeping it under the rug and right. then that dust is under the rug and it, it's like, okay, it's not harmful, but then it turns into mold. Midlife and, crisis. And then it's like yeah. midlife crisis. Right. So men, we do, I think we just haven't done a great job of attacking it and then it shows up in, in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it is a human deal where we have self-doubt and, yeah. and perhaps, yeah. and I think about like, who can be president of the United States, you do need to have a sense of arrogance. Like you need to have a sense of like, I'm important, I matter. I'm the best person for this job. I'm the best person for this job. Like I am, I am. And pro athletes are the same way. Like you can take Serena or Stephen Curry or whoever you want to take. Like those people have to believe that they are the best when they're at it. I'm So I'm just thinking out loud, but I'm curious that, like, how do you cultivate that in more women in politics? So, I mean, our approach is get to them early and get them to understand that there are barriers in uh, the way women think about leadership, their own leadership, that is pretty universal. I mean, I speak to women around the world. We all seem to have those same the same type of self-doubt about whether we really belong at the top. And... Once you know that, wow, a lot of people get stuck in the same place, it's not just my problem, then it's easier to surmount it. You know, it's like it's and I felt like that. I mean, I used to feel like I I didn't have what it takes to do certain things. And then at a certain point, I met enough women who also didn't think they had what it takes. I'm like, oh, right. So we all feel like this. It's Mm -hmm. like a it's like a woman issue 
around leadership and it makes it easier to get past it. Yeah. And perhaps there's some positives in that. Like what? What are you thinking? The humility of it. I think absolutely the humility. I mean, I, I think that, you know, you said that you have to be arrogant to get to the top. I think there's a difference between arrogance and feeling you are the right person for the job. You're going to be able to do this. You're going to be able to help people. I mean, if you were president, you know, wouldn't you want to, wouldn't you think that the reason you were there is to help other people have better lives. For sure. Right? As opposed to everybody will think I'm a god. You know, I think it's it's but right now a lot of the people in politics tend to be the former. They tend to be the the godlike as opposed to For sure. And I think arrogance isolated and just singularly is extremely toxic and dangerous. I'm talking about when you mix arrogance with humility and they can be mixed. And so oh, if yeah, I if, see that. If you have the humility to prepare to work to ask questions to build yeah. a team to get their thoughts mm-hmm. but the inner air and I, maybe inner arrogance is the phrase that i love like the inner sense of belief that i'm important and that i'm valued yeah. and that oh, I'm i love valuable. it it's funny because arrogance to me is such a bad word but when yeah. you put it that way i totally get it and i think that that's exactly right it's believing in yourself really deeply and i i, I it's an interesting thing to think about because we started talking about confidence yeah and for me when i work with people confidence feels like a feeling. And so it comes and goes depending Mm -hmm. on the output that we're getting. Whereas when I use that word arrogance, people do cringe and I know that they cringe and I I want them to step into that cringe because it, it, the truth is like, we need to have that inner belief that we're valuable regardless of what the output is saying. But, but we also, when we blend it with, so I have this framework of preparation mind and performance mind. So humble in preparation, arrogant in performance. And so this notion that you shift and so you don't stay one way all the time. And let's use public speaking as, I just, as an example. I just was thinking Yeah, that. go for it. Tell no, me about, I just was saying, yeah. I was just thinking of myself backstage before almost anything where I'm, I'm, you probably wouldn't see that I was a wreck, but inside I'm like, do I remember everything? Am I good enough to do this? I'm way too nervous to get out there. I, I can't do it. And then literally when I step on stage, I am like, I'm, I'm, I don't know, maybe people see me and be like, she's not perfect, but I feel so in control. I, I really do. I'm just thinking about this thing that I did um, this, this spring where I stepped on stage and it was like, I had total inner peace, inner confidence. I was like, it just, you know, this warrior. It, and it's so, it's interesting. I'd never really thought about that before that I've actually thought that my anxiety beforehand is a detriment because it's so uncomfortable. But maybe that actually helps to fuel all that preparation that you do, like running through everything frantically in your head. Maybe that actually helps you to get on stage and be great. Well, so I think anxiety is another word that gets a bad rap. And like huh. the reality is, yes, if you over-index on anything, it's bad, right? Mm-hmm. If you over-index on confidence, it turns into hubris. And yeah. hubris is what brings down Enron, right? So like, <laughs> yeah. but we have a tendency to say confidence is good, right? And like Brene Brown's work is so cool for those that aren't familiar because she takes a word like courageous, which men are like, <gasps> oh, courage, yes. <laughs> vulnerability, <laughs> bad, right? right. Bad. I love Brene Brown. But, but she's connecting like vulnerability with courage. And all of a sudden you're right. like, holy crap, like I need vulnerability if I want to be courage. And so like yeah. for me, that's the world I love is yeah. when we reframe words and we stop thinking and judging the words 
words as good or bad, and we think about when we need to use each of them. Well, I actually think it's interesting because when I said power, you're like, ooh, that is negative connotations. Yeah. And, and when you said arrogance, I'm like, I'm not sure that's a good word. And so, yeah. Yeah, but if I step into power in a different way, and I, and I think for me, it, it comes from like doing these self-assessments and power is usually a value that they look oh, for. Yeah. And my power value is usually not that high. Yeah. Um, and as I think about my own situation right now, there's an opportunity where I can either step into something as the leader and as like the number one. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. And I'm almost taking it in a way that we're talking about how a lot of women is like, oh, it might be better off not. But it's been interesting because the people in my group, uh, two of them are women. And both women said to me, I would be a really great number two. And I looked at them and I said, you know, that's not something I would say. I don't know if I believe that I can be the number one. But I don't think I'd be a great number two. Mm -hmm. And it was, it's, it's a, that's. Ryan, so the main thing, and I literally just read this on a job application the other day. Um, the main thing that women say when you say, would you like to be in power? Would you like to be a leader? They say, I don't want to do that, but I will work right below the leader. They all what, want to be behind about? the scenes. I think it's, it's that I'm not sure I have. It's probably like take all of your doubt about this being number one. It, they're feeling that and they're thinking, you know, I, I could have almost all of that but be one step below and I don't have all that scrutiny and people aren't going to watch me so carefully. I don't know. But I mean the behind the scenes thing, man, that is prevalent. I've heard that a million That's times. That's exactly what both these people said. I, be, I love working behind the scenes. I'm telling you. And you know what's interesting? I challenge them every time they say that. I'm like, why would you not want to be... And they're like, well, I'm an introvert or I don't know if I have the skills. I'm like, well, that's what all women say. So maybe you should rethink. Because I have a fear of fame. I don't want to be famous. Yeah. Um, and, but I also, look, I, I just know my weaknesses. So as I think about like a number one job and the competencies that you need mm -hmm. to have, I think it's really complex and you sure. need to be dy dynamic in a lot of different places. And I think I, I'm good at some things and bad at other things. But that's mm. not, but my concern is not that I... Could I do it or couldn't? Yeah. I'm like, I could do it. I just don't know how great I'd be at it. Whereas they're saying, mm, I don't think I even want to, I think I just would be better off just slotting in over but, here. But That's what different. I also think is that I think you should do it. I don't even know what it is, <laughs> but I think you should do it. And the reason is, I think that, that probably if you're offered something, you know, a number one and you're like, oh, I could definitely do that. I'm going to do it. I don't know. Maybe it's not good enough. Maybe it's not a challenge enough and you want to be challenged. You want to be a little uncomfortable because that's when you get to, to really shine and be great. I think that's an awesome, first of all, thank you. I appreciate it. This has turned into me. You're yeah, coaching I know. Let's, me let's do some therapy yeah. Yeah, for you. <laughs> um, I had a female client who's mm -hmm. a, let's call her CEO of her company and she was making a big hire and it was a big, big hire, a public hire, mm -hmm. something that, you know, it was her first big hire. And we talked about She's like, I just don't feel 100% about this. Uh -huh. And we talked about it. I was like, well, what if you felt 100%? She's like, well, then I'd probably be missing something. Yeah. And so we got to this place That's of good. like 90-10. It's like, all right, I want to get to 90% because I don't ever want to get to 100% because that 10% serves me. The anxiety piece that mm -hmm. you're talking about, like if we don't have any anxiety, we don't look both ways before we cross the street. We drink too much and then we drive. Yeah. We don't prepare. We, we, don't, you know? we don't prepare. So I think it's really cool. Yeah. I want to go back to the work that you're doing. Um, and, and so Running Start, give me, give me how you've seen things shift when you're getting these girls in high school or college mm -hmm. or after. Can you, can you talk about some of the success that you guys have had and, and what yeah. that's looked like? Yeah. I mean, so 
I see it every day. I actually was was in my inbox uh, yesterday afternoon and thinking, I wonder if other people get this. So, I mean, I had two notes in there from students just telling me, you're not going to believe what's happened to me. I've had this great thing. And I trace it back to the time when I was at Running Start. It's, it is so affirming that what we're doing is right. And so let me, let me think of, um, well, I mean, oh, I have a good one. And I shouldn't say this person's name because I don't know how public she is yet. But so in 2009 or 10, we had a student come who wore um, a hijab and she was really talented, really great. She had this awesome idea for a nonprofit. She's in high school. This is a high school program. And at the end, you know, I said, you would be so, you did so well in this program. You're such a superstar. I hope you'll run for office one day. She's like, what are you talking about? How could I run for office? I'm like, you just went through this whole week of program. How do you think you couldn't run for office? That's our whole message. And she said, I wear a headscarf. Nobody is going to ha- elect somebody wearing a headscarf, right? They're, t- show me one woman in office who has a headscarf. And at the time, I couldn't think of anybody. Now there, now there are. And so anyway, that kind of kept at her. She went to Middlebury College and she ran for student government and she got elected. She's the only woman. She's the first woman elected with a headscarf and she served in student government. And she ended up making this great nonprofit to help other Muslim women by um, doing self-defense training for them so that they feel more powerful since they're often subject to violence. And she's told me she's running for office. And I just, I, I like that to me as a total success story is that she had this concrete doubt. I, there's not even doubt, but like certainty. I cannot do this. I have all these things that I want to do with my life, but I, this, this, I can't do. What does that feel like for you when you hear that story? Like what, where do you, where do you feel in your body? Like what comes up for you? She's an underdog. She's somebody who had taken herself out of the running and she knows what it's like to be discriminated against. She knows what it's like to face violence and she is going to stand up. I mean, she's going to, she is going to represent those people who, who also have those problems because she's seen it. Like that's her life. And and that's, maybe that's the underdog thing. You don't want people who are like, life is great and everybody does well. You know, you want the people who are like, I struggled. And so when you come in and talk to me about struggle, I get it. And I'm going to help, you know, do what I can to help you um, get stronger. If you go back to your early thirties and you leave that law firm, uh-huh. do you think if you had, if they had kept you on and said, Oh, you can do part time, you can stay at this. Do you think you would have started running start? No. I don't know, Brian. I, I don't know, but I, I feel so positively that there are bad things that happen in life that have just like excellent turns and that um, it's like that whole, it's kind of like the anxiety. You have to have that discomfort to grow sometimes. And, you know, I also went through a divorce that was incredibly painful and, and you know, anybody who's been through that knows that you, that's one of the worst things that can happen in, in life. And now on the other side of it, um, I'm happier than I've, I've ever been. And so I think, I really do think, um, yeah, there's something, there's something good in the disruption. And we can find adversity. It doesn't have to be the big things. It can be something really small. Sure. Um, and, uh, I think discomfort, pain, yeah, it, it just expedites growth. Uh, it doesn't mean you need it for growth, but when you go through it, no, there's an right. opportunity for growth. Yeah, but you know, I'm just thinking maybe you do need it for growth, not the big, terrible disruptions, but the doubt that you were just talking about, about I'm not sure I could do this number one job. I think maybe 
maybe you do in order to really grow and become something different, you're going to have to be a little uncomfortable or a lot uncomfortable. So I love it. And this conversation has been a little uncomfortable. And, oh, and so like, I yeah. think it's hopefully a little uncomfortable for everyone for that's the, listening. For the listeners, yeah. And especially as a white male, I think we are at this crossroads as white men. And I'm, like, I'm part of white men. I don't even know how to, where to go from that. But, yes. but like, we're trying to figure out where, where, where should we be in this whole process? And, um, yeah. But, but I feel a little bit of that because I'm a white woman and I think that now the world is understanding we need, we need different voices. You know, we've always heard from the same people, the same people have been in power and now we need to try and open that up and bring in different, different ideas, different life perspectives. And, you know, as a white woman, I'm not, it's not my moment either. <laughs> so I, I understand. So what's your vision for Running Start 10 years from now? What, what do you hope you guys are doing? So right now we're a little, we have lots and lots of interest, which is great. You know, young women get why they need to learn how to access power, um, but we don't have the resources to serve as many as we'd like. And so we're actually developing a toolkit now that we're going to be able to give away so that, you know, anybody can email us and say, hey, I'd like to do this. And then we have you know, we have a toolkit we can give them and they'll report back to us how it all works. And then we hope that instead of training 2,500 a year, we'll train 25,000. Impact wide and yeah. touching as many people as you can. Yeah, exactly. You said something earlier that I, it just, it's stuck with me. So I want to bring it up. Yeah. What? You have a team of seven women. Yeah. Mm. Oh, good question. Where's, there. where's, where's the diversity? Oh, you know what? That is... No, do you know that nobody asked me that? Nobody asked you that? Nobody They're asked thinking me that. It. They're not, because I've been thinking about it. I bet Joey, Joey, have you been thinking about that? A little <laughs> bit, a little bit, he said. Um, I feel like one of those radio, yeah. I've never really had anyone sit here. And oh, yeah. I feel like, you know, there's radio This is our host. radio audience. Yeah, like, right, right, right. yeah. So, anyway. You got the laugh track. Yeah. It's, it's really good. Um, oh, that is a good point. It's funny because we take a lot of um, care to make sure that our team is diverse, but not gender-wise. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take that into consideration because we're about to hire a couple of people. So you're right. But can I tell you just like a little interesting aside is that years ago when I first decided that we should add men to our board because we had an all-female board, there was a lot of fuss about it. Anyway, hmm. I won. Fuss from the other board members. Yeah. About having men. Yeah. Can't this be an all-women space? I like men. So anyway, and the men have actually been our incredible supporters and allies. Yeah, because the whole idea of diversity is, is it to actually have diversity. Yes, perspective, right, and yeah. different stories and different experiences. Yeah, and I think that's what gets missed in the diversity conversation mm -hmm. is that actually when we have these different perspectives, we perform better. Yes, and that is exactly so right. valuing it from a performance standpoint, a, and then b, because it can create all kinds of ripple effects as well. But like, I know I've talked to my dad about this a lot. He had a business and brought in a female partner uh -huh. and people would ask him about diversity. And he's like, yeah, she sees things differently than, than, uh, than I saw right. them. And there was tremendous value in that perspective. Yeah. And I think people right now, there's this conversation of diversity as, oh, I'm checking the box that I'm looking yeah. at the faces and let's right. try to have these different faces. Um, and I think if we continue to think about it that way, we're missing we're missing the actual power yeah. of what diversity is. Listen, I'm I'm really happy you called me out on it because it's it's funny how <clears throat> that's not a conversation and it should be. 
Why do you think it's not a conversation? Well, I mean, I'll tell you something else too, which is which really deeply annoys me is that I think that this issue we're talking about about getting the people who are not in power into power because it's going to help everybody. It's it's not a woman's issue. It's it's a universal issue of humankind. We need to diversify our leadership and power, right? But so I speak all the time. I mean, almost every week I have some speaking engagement and I am almost always speaking to groups of women. I don't get asked to speak to mixed groups or groups of men. I do occasionally, but I mean, it's so few and far between. And I feel like we silo, you know, if, if, you know, Black Lives Matter is your cause, you're going to go talk to African-American groups and, you know, I'm the woman's speaker. And so, yeah, I feel like we need to do a better job of getting different messages out to broader audiences. It's interesting because when I was doing research, I know that you guys are apolitical, so you don't talk about, you know, what side of the aisle you're just trying to raise the power for women. And, um, and so it's in that sense, it's apolitical. And I think, uh, especially in politics, like being a feminist and these conversations we're having or black lives matter or whatever you want to call it. I'm going to choose my words wisely here. You need to involve everyone. And, um, if, if we continue to remain siloed yeah. in how we can make this world a better place, we're not going to get there. We need to get there together and we need advocates. We need advocates, advocates everywhere. And allies. And allies. Exactly. No, you're, you're so totally right. I believe in that so deeply. I and mean, when, I think and when we shut down, sorry, yeah, no, no, interrupting no, you, no, but when we shut no. down the other side, um, whoever that other side might be, you miss an opportunity to actually engage and, create more allies and advocates. Yeah. No, I think that that, that is a hundred percent true. And I mean, it's to me, it's about disrupting the status quo and getting everybody to, to feel a little bit, um, uncomfortable because we're trying to change things totally. It sounds the word is progressive and the word progressive has turned into oh, like yeah, it's a loaded term, a loaded political yeah. term, but really like the way I look at it and without knowing it from the dictionary, it's like, we're progressing, we're improving. Like, mm-hmm. That should be a part of the human kind yeah. and the human spirit is we're just going to progress. Yeah. And so, yeah. Wait, can I tell you one other thing that just, it, it's not even so tied to what we're talking about right now, but I just remembered it. So there have been studies done about how do you get young women to want to step into power and to be leaders. And they're basically, you know, five things that you can do. This is especially for politics. One of them is get them to play team sports. Hmm. Team sports is such an indicator of understanding how to work together with a team, you know, how to sometimes be the leader, sometimes step back and follow, that it's an incredible training ground for getting people comfortable with power. I had a random question. Yeah. I don't know if you can answer this. What? Like all women schools. I think about the seventh grade you. Um, yeah. So- I, I think there's research that suggests that, you know, if you go to an all women's school, it helps confidence, confidence, academics. Right. Uh, and so I'm just curious to get your pers- your perspective on that. Yeah, I'm a little torn on it. I never went to a single sex school, you know, because of uh, um, in light of what we were just talking about. I do think that if you go to an all women's school, maybe you're missing out a little bit on how the rest of the world thinks, you know, so I. I think if I had a daughter, I probably would not send her to single sex school. But I'm telling you that the young women I see who go that route, they really do have something. I mean, they are starting out on a 
a different uh, at a different level. It's fascinating. I remember being in high school and seeing that transpire. I remember talking to my mom about it. Like, what's with these girls? Like, why? What? They should be going and doing yeah. amazing things. Um, and so I have a little girl. I have a how oh, old, how old is, she is she now? Oh gosh, she's she's two and a half going on. 35. <laughs> yeah. She's, she yeah. runs our house, but it's interesting because my son is 14 months older. So we're, they're not twins. Wow. But, but they're almost, they're, they're, they're yeah. close in age. So he will turn four in December and he is the kindest, sweetest, like gentle, yeah. empathetic little boy. And my daughter is a fierce beast. <laughs> and my wife and I talk, we're like, you know what? The world could probably use a, a fierce girl and a little bit softer boy. So oh, I love it. And maybe that's our future. Maybe. Is that gender? I mean, I think gender doesn't matter as much to the generation coming up right now. And so that would be great, right? That instead of, you know, hire women, hire people with these traits, which are more feminine that men can have too. Great place for us to, I think, call it a, uh, a day or an hour. Uh, this has been so fun. And this is, these are the types of conversations I love having because I think these are the types of conversations we need to continue to have. We need to step into discomfort. We need yeah. to talk about these types of questions and, and men need to have these conversations. And um, so I, like, thank you for the work that you're doing. First of all, I think uh, as an underdog myself, or as I a see myself, underdog. I see myself as a little, underdog I, that makes me really like you <laughs> yeah i don't know if i actually am but i i have a little bit of that bark uh and, and so like i think it's really cool what you're doing i think it's very clear that we need this in our society um and it doesn't have to be perfect and so yeah, like right. as you think about your team and, and what you're doing like just keep doing good work and uh and and it's 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 great to see that you've used adversity to shift your life and and to change it for the better and uh, it's inspiring so I appreciate well, you I am equally inspired and I really enjoyed the talk so thank you Oh let me give you a shout out Oh where can yeah. people learn about running start oh, running and start. anything else that you're passionate about Yeah god it's like it's all running start um runningstart.org uh, check us out. And we have programs for high school students, college students, and young professionals. We're always doing cool things. Um, so yeah, come find us. Awesome. So social media, I think you have a handle. Yeah, Susanna WDC. Awesome. On Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And then you can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. As you can tell, that's not my, my gig. I, I much prefer <laughs> having these conversations than you know, talking about the, so the marketing side of whatever this is. So uh, sorry for the hesitation there, but hopefully everyone stayed on and didn't drop off <laughs> and, and heard that. Uh, yeah, appreciate you. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Power is the ability to use what you have to solve a problem, to fix something that, that serves hopefully not just you, but but. Ideally, you're fixing something that, that's going to help other people too. 